This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. 200th Episode As we were sitting down to write this script here at the Word of the Week offices, we were reminded by our ever-astute and overly demanding producer that the script we were working on was the script for the 200th episode of the show. And it was therefore suggested that we might consider doing something special to mark the event. And it was also mentioned that it would be acceptable to do some sort of extra-long episode. And of course, we were overjoyed by these suggestions as the only thing that improves a forced gimmick of a script is writing even more of it. Unfortunately, our producer has been rendered completely immune to withering sarcasm thanks to the interactions that resulted in the previous 199 episodes of this podcast. So he simply said, Great, thanks! So, once again, we find ourselves facing a looming deadline and a blank page. But this time, we couldn't simply flip open the Dungeons & Dragons Monster Manual to a random page and fart out something about peritons and radio astronomy or fire elementals and Hungarian freedom fighters. Part of the problem is that we tend to lump our big ideas together into little vaguely connected series of three or four episodes. And we also often tie those series to particular dates or events. And right now, we've been holding all of our really good ideas back for the October rush up to Halloween. And we just finished a three-part sort of series that started with us talking about skulls. And so, as we sat there, we cursed the fact that we're not sitcom writers for broadcast television. Because the whole issue would be so easy to solve. Actually... Hmm. Having hit an absolute genius idea, we called our producer and suggested that he celebrate the Bicentenary episode, which, by the way, is the correct way of saying it because Bicentennial specifically means 200th year, because that last bit comes from the word annual, meaning year. We suggested that he celebrate the Bicentenary episode with a clip show. Just gather our best bits from the previous episodes and cut them together with a few minutes of framing device at the beginning and at the end, and he'd be golden. It wouldn't even need a script at all, just an hour in the editing booth or wherever a producer has his lair. Easy. It turns out we do not have it as easily as sitcom writers for broadcast television. He irrationally tried to involve us in the process and assumed we were merely trying to avoid work for a week, which is only partly true. He also called our bluff by making a joke about bottle episodes, so he knew exactly what we were thinking already, and he was having none of it. What is all this stuff about situation comedies, broadcast television clip shows, and bottle episodes? What does any of that have to do with us being caught between two big story arcs when we have to celebrate a big round number? Well, it all has to do with how television budgets work, and something called Sweeps Week. What you have to understand is that broadcast television networks make almost all of their money from advertising. They are television shows that people like you and me want to watch, and they intercut the show with short advertisements for various products and services. You've probably heard of this. They're called commercials. 
and various companies pay the broadcast television networks money to put their commercials into the network's various shows. Are you with us so far? I sure hope so. But as far back as the 1950s, when situation comedies and primetime television were becoming big business, there was a bit of a problem. And it had to do with how much to charge companies to run their ads in a certain show. See, not all ad space is created equal. A very popular television show like I Love Lucy back in the 1950s would guarantee 50 million Americans would be watching each advertisement in that episode. Whereas less popular shows would have far fewer Americans. And advertising is a numbers game. It's all about the number of people who see the ad. Enter the A.C. Nielsen Company, which still exists, by the way, and is still highly successful. It's called Nielsen Corporation now. And actually, Nielsen Corporation is owned by a bigger company called Nielsen Holdings, but that's another story. Nielsen Company was founded by Arthur C. Nielsen in 1923 in Chicago, Illinois. And originally, it was founded as a marketing research firm. Basically, they helped various companies measure how successful their marketing and advertising campaigns actually were. Who was seeing the ads? Who was responding to them? How many additional sales were being generated? And so on. This was big, valuable information and hard to measure, especially before computers even existed on which there might someday be an internet. Naturally, in the 1950s, advertisers wanted to know how many people were seeing their commercials. And television networks wanted to know how many people were watching their shows, so they could charge advertisers more money for premium ad space. And it fell to A.C. Nielsen Company to solve the problem. Eventually, they acquired a company called C.E. Hooper, which had developed a device that would actually photograph your television screen at various intervals to record what channels you watched when and what shows were on. And they would provide those devices to a broad sample of American families and individuals who would allow their television watching habits to be monitored and who were, hopefully, representative of the country as a whole. They were called Nielsen families. And that's why television ratings, a measure of how many viewers were watching each show, were called Nielsen ratings. But before those recording devices, Nielsen had another system. And it was one they continued to use in tandem with the recording devices. And it involved asking participating families, and there were usually about 1,200 of them, to write down all the stuff they watched in a specific one-week period. And then... Nielsen employees would gather up and analyze all of the data. And to make the data collection and management easier, they organized the work by region and worked from east to west. Because the data was always gathered in a specific one-week period, and because the data was gathered up and analyzed by sweeping from east to west, this became known as Sweeps Week. And it was a big deal. During Sweeps Week, every network and every television show producer knew that their success was being measured. And if they did well, their advertising would go for premium prices. And as a result, networks would put more money into those shows so that they could continue to attract larger and larger audiences. And that brings us around to budgets. Every television series had, or has, because apart from streamlining the data gathering and collection and analysis with automated systems and computers and stuff, 
the basic idea of gathering viewership data during specific periods of time to set advertising prices and therefore set budgets, that's still how network television does things. Every series has a budget for each season, an amount of money they have available to spend building sets and paying actors and writing scripts and editing and adding visual effects and, well, everything else. And those budgets are rarely distributed equally among all of the episodes in a season. Television producers tend to spend more money on the early episodes in the season so that they can attract viewers, or the later episodes in the season so that they can entice viewers to come back for another season. And during Sweeps Week, when the viewership numbers are actually being counted and you want every possible audience member watching your show. And the episodes that fall between those three parts of the season... Well, they get by on a shoestring. One way to save money on an in-between episode is to just send an editor into a booth with a bunch of back episodes and ask them to slap together a clip show. And that was a pretty popular way to celebrate a milestone in the show's production that didn't align with Sweeps Week for a long time. But another way to handle the limited budget was not to reuse clips. It was to reuse sets and actors and anything else. Enter the bottle episode. A bottle episode is an episode of a television show which is cheap to produce because it doesn't require the construction of new sets or the setup and breakdown time and energy of filming on too many different sets or in too many locations. It also tends to involve only the core cast with no guest stars or extras. And for certain flashy sci-fi and fantasy shows, it also avoids the use of complex costumes, animatronics, makeup, or visual effects. Take, for a particularly topical example for this podcast, the 14th episode of the second season of the NBC situation comedy, Community. Community depicts the antics of an attorney who was forced to go to a community college and finish a degree he lied about having, and a bunch of his fellow college students. While it started off strong in 2009, it had some rough years with its ratings, some production troubles, got cancelled, got uncancelled, and then finally ended in 2015 before it could be cancelled again. But none of that matters. What matters is Season 2, Episode 14, entitled Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. The main cast of the show spend the entire episode in one classroom playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons. And no, it doesn't go into elaborate fantasy sequences where we see what the players are imagining is happening in the world. We just see them playing Dungeons and Dragons. Like, around a table. The term bottle episode originated with the production of the original Star Trek series. They called such episodes ship-in-a-bottle episodes, and the bottle part is what stuck. But while most people think that the phrase bottle episode refers to a limited number of sets and the fact that the episode is stuck in a bottle, it was actually a bit of a double entendre. Because it also referred to the fact that the budget for the episode was stifled. It was going through a bottleneck. And because the various Star Trek series always had some wild ratings fluctuations and the budget was constantly in flux... They also perfected the bottle episode. Now, the whole bottle episode idea might seem to carry some sort of negative connotation. 
The truth is that many bottle episodes end up being very popular with fans of their respective shows. And television writers, especially those on the Star Trek series, who have talked extensively on the subject in interviews, tend to enjoy writing bottle episodes and find them particularly challenging. Without being able to fall back on new sets, impressive locations, extras, guest star special effects, and other gimmicks, what's generally left is to explore heartfelt character drama and to advance or resolve ongoing plot threads. Of course, many fans do end up divided on the quality of bottle episodes, and some of the most divisive works of fiction have grown out of bottle episodes. Even video games. Let's talk about The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, a particularly divisive bottle episode that has more to do with bottles than you might imagine. The story starts back in 1996 with Nintendo's release of the Nintendo 64 gaming console. Now, we're not going to go through the whole history of Nintendo and home video games again. We've covered it before, but the long and short of it is that arcade video games got popular in the 1970s. Then various companies, especially Atari, figured out how to make home video game consoles. Then, in 1982 and 1983, the market for home video game consoles in the United States fell apart for various reasons, and then Nintendo brought out the Nintendo Entertainment System and became synonymous with the video game industry. And then there were the Bit Wars, which we'll talk about someday. But it was basically a marketing ploy to get people to commit to one of the two big systems on the market at the time the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or the Sega Mega Drive, a.k.a. the Sega Genesis, depending on what continent you lived on. And then, everything entered the third dimension. Prior to the mid-1990s, most video games were flat, two-dimensional things. Some PC games and some arcade games, and a few home console games were experimenting with allowing three-dimensional characters to move around in three-dimensional environments using various hardware and software tricks, but it was the mid-1990s when video games made the real jump to 3D. And while Nintendo was actually the last company to get its 3D console to market, the Nintendo 64, they still managed to revolutionize gaming because they took some of their most popular franchises, like the 2D Mario platformers and the top-down Legend of Zelda adventure games, and built entirely new forms of gameplay that allowed the same types of games to work as 3D games. More or less, I mean, there were a lot of shenanigans with stolen Yoshi platformers and ugliness with third-party hardware developers that resulted in whole new companies entering the market, but the point is, The Legend of Zelda the Ocarina of Time was released in 1998. It was the largest, most complex game Nintendo had ever developed. And it brought one of Nintendo's most beloved franchises into the third dimension. And its reception cannot be overstated. It sold over one million copies in the first week of its release. And after six weeks of release, sold almost three million copies. It was the tenth best-selling game of its year. Now that might not sound like much, but it was released six weeks before the end of the year. So it caught up fast. To this day, it maintains nearly perfect scores on ratings, aggregation sites, and is one of the most beloved, if not the most beloved, 
games in the Zelda franchise. And Nintendo didn't want to wait to get a sequel to market for obvious reasons. And so, less than two years later came a direct sequel, which was rare in the franchise, as most Zelda games were prequels, intercals, spiritual successors, or happened in completely different temporal realities from each other. The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask was a weird game. In it, Link, the non-titular hero, was trapped in a strange world called Termina, while the same three days kept repeating over and over. And the cycle ended every time with an unspeakably creepy-faced moon falling from the sky and destroying the world. Now, the Zelda franchise was usually pretty straightforward. There's an evil wizard demon who has kidnapped a princess. Link needs to gather eight somethings together to unlock the wizard demon's lair. And then Link wins. But it wasn't just the storyline that was strange. First, the game only had four major dungeons. And the Zelda universe previously had been lousy with dungeons. In most games, you went through twice that many. In fact, the whole game was pretty small compared to previous titles. And not only that, but all of the characters bore an eerie resemblance to the characters from Ocarina of Time. And that's because they were all reused. Majora's Mask was a bottle episode. Limited locations, limited cast, very little new programming. And that's because Nintendo rushed it to market in a hurry to capitalize on Ocarina of Time's success. And reception was mixed. Sales were strong and it received good critical reception, but fans of the series were more divided. Today, though, it's pretty fondly remembered by most fans, and it is especially remembered for its strong character moments, complex themes involving life and death and social isolation, and the fact that it did something different from the rest of the series. Now, it's apt that we use the Legend of Zelda series as an example of a bottle episode done well because you really can't mention the word bottle to any fan of the Zelda series without reminding them of it. And that's because, starting with the third game in this series, The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, bottles have been one of the most useful and powerful items that Link could obtain in the games. Yes, simple, empty glass bottles. And you'll just have to trust us on that, as Zelda fans because it'd be hard to explain without talking about a lot of other game mechanics. And we'd rather talk about another connection to bottles in the Legend of Zelda series. See, the Legend of Zelda series has a lot of odd monsters with weird names. Peahats, Darknuts, Keys, Stalfos, Octoroks, and Tektites. Do you get it? Bottle? Glass? Tektite? No? Okay. To get it, you have to know what glass is. Glass is basically silica. Sand. Silicon dioxide. Specifically, it's sand that's been melted at temperatures of up to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit and then has been allowed to cool. And something very interesting happens when you melt down sand. It crystallizes. And it doesn't. See, you probably remember from previous episodes that most solids, if you look at them at the molecular level, 
have this regular pattern to the way their molecules fit together. A structure. Different substances have different structures. Salt has a cubic structure. Ice has a regular hexagonal structure. Starch has a long chain-like structure. But glass? Glass is kind of weird. Once you melt sand down and let it cool, it doesn't quite manage to rearrange itself completely into a nice crystal pattern. Instead, it's a partially jumbled mess of half-formed crystals, which leads to the popular and technically incorrect definition of glass as a very slow-flowing liquid. It's not. It's a special state of matter called an amorphous solid a solid that can kind of change its shape very slowly over time. Now, modern glass is actually a bit more complicated than just melted sand that has been allowed to gloosh back together and chill out. We actually add other stuff to make different types of glass. The standard glass you have in your windows at home is probably soda-lime silica glass. In addition to the silica sand, sodium carbonate is added. That lowers the temperature at which the sand melts. That makes it easier to make the glass. You don't have to heat it as much. The problem is the sodium carbonate has this unfortunate side effect of dissolving in water. So glass made with sodium carbonate tends to fall apart if you get it wet. To counteract that, glass makers add lime or calcium carbonate to the mix. That makes it waterproof. You can add other stuff to sand to make different kinds of glass too. For example, if you add boron oxide, you get borosilicate glass. Boron oxide makes it so the glass won't become brittle and crack or shatter due to sudden extreme temperature changes. That's how oven-proof Pyrex glass is made. And lead oxide makes glass that can be cut very smoothly with very sparkly surfaces. That's lead glass or leaded crystal. Very pretty stuff. But those are all modern inventions, relatively speaking anyway if you don't know the trick of adding soda and lime to sand to lower the melting point of the silica, it takes a lot of energy to melt sand. 3,000 degrees worth. So the question is how glass was invented at all. It turns out that the earliest glass artifacts that were discovered, artifacts which included knives, spear points, and bits of jewelry, were made of naturally occurring glass. See, sand actually melts in nature occasionally. Obviously, volcanic lava will do a number on sand, and that's where we get obsidian. But there's also a slightly more mysterious source of naturally occurring glass, one that doesn't come from volcanoes. They are called tectites. Derived from the Greek word tektos, which means melted, tektites are small, rounded objects of silicate glass that do not show any of the characteristics of having been anywhere near a volcano and they fascinated ancient peoples. The earliest mention of tektites in literature dates back to 900 BCE from a book by Liu Sun entitled Ling Pio Lu Yi, or Notes on Wandering Past the Nan Ling Mountains. In it, the author describes the brilliant black glossy stones that rang with a beautiful tone when flicked. He called them inkstones, and assumed they had come from the sky, probably from the thunder gods. That was his guess, anyway. But it wasn't until the 19th and 20th centuries that anyone paid any attention to these weird stones. It started with the discovery of large deposits of tektites in Indonesia, and another along the Ivory Coast in Africa that ended up in the hands of the French Museum of Natural History 
in Paris. Once these stones were described in the various scientific publications of the day, they roused a lot of interest, and a lot of explorers went looking for more, and they found a lot more of them all over the world. The problem was, no one could explain where they had come from. Theories were proposed and discarded. They were definitely not volcanic, but to exist at all, something had to heat up sand to something near 3,000 degrees. Lightning, maybe? Or weird volcanic processes that didn't follow the normal pattern of volcanic processes? Or maybe they fell from the moon? No, really. In the 1950s and 1960s, in the United States, there was a surge in interest in tektites as some scientists speculated they might be chunks of the moon that had been blown off during meteor impacts and then fallen to the earth. Thunder gods indeed. And actually, that's not far off the current theory. And we should stress that the current thinking on tektites is just a theory. They are still unexplained. But the current popular theory is that they are the result of terrestrial sand that was melted when the sand was too close to where a meteor impacted the Earth's surface. Regardless, humans have been using bits of glass since the Stone Age, and it was glass they found lying around. Obsidian and tectites and other natural glasses, it wasn't until much later that the humans started making glass on purpose. And we're not quite sure who was the first to do it, or how they figured it out. We do know the oldest samples of manufactured glass have been found in Egypt and in Mesopotamia, and they date back to around 3000 BCE. And those samples were of simple decorative objects. It wasn't until around 1500 BCE that we see the first example of the production of hollow glass devices specifically vases that were produced in Mesopotamia. But the idea spread. Soon thereafter, glass ornaments and hollow glass was being produced in Egypt, in Greece, in China, and in northern Italy, in a region called Tyrol. The oldest instruction manual that explains how to make glass comes from the library of King Ashurbanipal of Assyria, copyright around 650 BCE problem with glass in the ancient world was that it was pretty danged hard to make. Obviously, you had to heat sand to ridiculous temperatures. That was hard enough. But to make anything more than a bead, you also had to shape the glass while it was still thousands of degrees hot, and then hold that shape while it cooled. That's why hollow glass containers were such a big deal, and so rare. Pouring glass into a mold was one thing, but getting a hollow thing? That was tricky. But then, some clever craftsmen in Alexandria and some other craftsmen along the coast of Syria made some pretty big discoveries. First, in Alexandria, they discovered how to purify the silica. And that's important because it's the impurities in glass that give glass its color and also make it transparent. That's why naturally occurring glasses are black, because there's stuff mixed in. But suddenly, in Alexandria, they were able to make clear glass. Well, clearish. Truly clear, colorless glass wouldn't appear until 1500 CE. But this let light through, and that was pretty cool. Second, in Syria, they discovered that if you put a blob of molten hot glass onto the end of a hollow tube and then blew into the tube, you could blow up the glass like a bubble. You had to keep turning it so gravity didn't wreck the shape, 
but if you did it just right, you could make a thin, hollow glass thing. These two discoveries both happened around the first century CE, which was good timing because they both hit the Roman Empire about the same time, and the Romans fell in love. The Romans developed their glass melting and working and forming and blowing technologies, and glass got cheaper and cheaper. And for the first time in history, glass was cheap enough that ordinary people could have it. Even clear glass, even hollow things made of glass, and suddenly, windows were a thing. Well, glass windows were a thing. Anyone could cut a hole in a wall. But suddenly you could cover that hole with something you could still see through, something affordable. And something else became a lot more affordable and a lot more prevalent. In fact, something else became a hot trade item all over the Roman Empire and beyond. The simple glass bottle, a great way to store your liquids on a budget. And eventually, a great metaphor for a way to produce your television show on a budget. But we digress. The 200th episode. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash GM Word of the Week. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.